That was rich. That was rich. That, um, just to come before the Lord and, and to worship him. I hope you do that. You know, uh, wherever you are, driving down the highway or whatever, you know, you just need to keep your eyes on the road, but uh, always keep your eyes on Jesus, too. You know, uh, this afternoon I, I was sitting down, jotting down some notes, and uh, you read the book of Acts, and, and you, uh, you ask the question, why was the early church so powerful? You know, you get into the early church, you read the Gospels, and, and you read about the, the main characters, it seems, there in, in the uh, uh, book of Acts, and, and you see such a powerful church, and, and you, you ask yourselves, you say, well, what, what's the difference? And tonight I thought, uh, I thought maybe we'd just talk about that a little bit. T.R. Glover said the early Christian church conquered because the Christians of those days outthought and outlived and outdied the pagans. I won't ask how many of you all have ever seen Seinfeld on, on television. Um, I'd say we'd get a show of hands. But I saw recently where they had done a study a drama department of a university had, uh, had done a study on, uh, I've got gnats on my Bible, that doesn't mean I haven't read it, I hope. They did a study on, on, uh, on the television show Seinfeld and they, and they asked, they said, why was this show so popular? What was it about this show that, uh, that drew people to it? And, and uh, it's interesting to find out this reasoning that they gave, they said the reason that Seinfeld was so popular because it had plotless programming. That it kind of meandered, I guess would be a word, meandered haplessly from one scene to another. That with, without any kind of connection, they went from one scene, one circumstance, to another scene, another circumstance, to another, to another, and, and, and they said perhaps the reason of the popularity of that show is because so many people lead plotless lives. They go from one setting to another, to another. They go from, they go from high school to college, and then they go from the college to their first job, and then they're dying by then to get married. So they get married and now they're dying. They're dying to have children. And then they're dying for the children to leave home. <laughs> and then they're dying to retire. And then finally, they're just dying. Not really finding out why they were placed here in the first place. Never really living forth their, their purpose. Never really trying to find out why God planted them right here on this earth. What would it look like in your own life 
If you live daily for purpose, realizing that, that there's a destiny, and, and uh, how would you act differently? What, 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 what would be happening in your life that's not happening now? And the pain or the patience that you're trying to operate with, what, uh, what, how would you handle situations in your life differently if you were not just going, or if we were not just going from, from one circumstance to another circumstance to another to another, from one scene to another scene to another, until finally, it's like, it's like recently, uh, in the last seven years, Beth and I moved four times, and we weren't used to that. We hadn't moved four times in our whole ministry, really, it seemed, but uh, we moved four times, and, and we began living in boxes, realizing that one day there'd be a final box. And, you know, being an undertaker's kid, I already had it picked out, so that's pretty cool. But uh, you, you say, what would be different? We lead plotless, plotless lives. And I remember years ago, years ago, with that in mind now, let me take you back a few years, because I just want to share a few things with you tonight that, that I really feel like I put in my heart to share with you, and, and I want to do that. Years ago, uh, when I was a senior in college, uh, I got saved. A and uh, uh, I was a last semester college student and uh, in a Christian school, supposedly. And, and, uh, and I met Jesus. Uh, I heard the preaching of, of a young man who was saved while he was going to Asbury Seminary. He was saved in 1970 at the Asbury Revival. And I heard him preach, and it really touched my heart. And anyway, I became a Christian my last semester of college, and, and, and within a month or so, I felt a real call to ministry. And so I applied to Asbury, and they said I wouldn't be able to get in, but I did, you know, and I thought, well, Lord, you're going before me. So that summer, I worked for my father in the funeral home, and I worked with my dad, and every day, this railroad man would come by the funeral home. His name was Dan McGee, and he, he had been a gambler all his life, and uh, uh, one night, one night he had plotted his suicide because uh, the railroad was on strike and he, owned, uh, he, he owed a, uh, a very large gambling debt and so he figured he would run his Oldsmobile over a cliff and uh, his family would be taken care of by the insurance. But the night before he was to do that, he ended up in a Pentecostal church outside of Norton, Virginia. And uh, there he met Jesus and he was really dynamite, this guy was. So he heard about what happened to me, and um, so he'd come by the funeral home every day, every day. He'd get out, he'd work all night on the railroad, and, and I don't know when he slept, but he, he'd come by the funeral home, he'd say, Joe, let's go to church tonight. And I said, I said, there's no church open on Tuesday night, you know. And he said, yeah, there is. And there was always this little church up, up in uh, Thacker's Branch, uh, just outside of Norton, there was always that little church where he had been saved. That little church was always doing church. And you'd go in there, and it, and it, was, it was really crowded. And, and we'd go in, and we would, um, we'd have to sit in the front. I said, Dan, we don't have to sit in the front. He said, yeah, we've got to sit in the front, Joe. And, and uh, the place was packed out every night. I mean, it's amazing. And the preacher would get up, and I, I mean, this guy was dynamite. But every night we'd go there, and it was full, and we always sat in the front. 
And if, if there were no seats in the front, he went in the Sunday school room and grabbed two metal chairs and put them in front of the front. And, you know, I like to sit in the back, you know. And, and, uh, but he'd sit in the front of the front, and, and he'd be up there, and, and, and he'd, uh, when, we, when they'd sing, he'd rock like this. He'd, he'd, he'd hold his arms like this, and he'd rock back and forth. You know, I don't know how he just kind of rocked back and forth. And, and there I was. And I remember one night this woman was playing the guitar, and she was running the aisles playing the guitar. I wasn't used to that, you know. I was a little Methodist church in Appalachia, and, and we didn't run the aisles, you know. And, and uh, this woman came down the aisle with this big guitar, and she's playing God's Not Dead and He's Still Alive. And she's running down the aisle like this, and she hit old Dan and back killed him out on the front of the front. And, and, and I, I leaned over to Dan. He's almost on the floor. And I said, you all right, Dan? He said, I'm all right. I'm all right. I'm all right. I'm all right. I'm, yeah, I'm all, right. I'm all right, Joe. I'm all right. And he started rocking again. And she's running down the aisle singing, God's not dead. He's still alive. And, and, and I, I mean, it was. And I said, Lord, do I have to do that? And the Lord really, he spoke to my heart and he said, no, you don't have to do that, Joe. But you have to love me like that. And I thought, well, I can do that. And I remember after that service that this, uh, the preacher's daughter came up to me. She was a pianist. And, and she came up to me and she said, uh, she was talking, introduced herself. And she said, do you have the Hullagus? And I said, what? She said, uh, do you have the Holocaust? And I said, uh, no, I've had my shots. You know, I, I, do I look peaky to you? Do I look like I have the Holocaust? And uh, uh, she said, and then it hit me what she was saying. You know, you think I have an accent. Uh, she, she was saying, do you have the Holy Ghost? And uh, I, I knew down deep that I sure didn't, didn't have the same one. Might have had his brother or something. I, I didn't have the same one she had, it seemed. But um, that was quite an experience. That really changed my life by going and hearing her dad preach. And, and those messages that he shared, he, he took the scripture uh, and it came alive. It came alive. And it, Anything he talked about. And you could tell it was something that he, that he truly believed. Uh, and he had the Holy Ghost, I assure you that. As they say, you know why the babies, you know why the kids fall out of bed? Because they fall asleep too close to where they got in. And, and the reason I think that a lot of churches, a lot of Christians today are somewhat dead is because they've fallen asleep pretty close to where they got in. And maybe they don't have the Holy Ghost, and the Holy Ghost doesn't have them, but there's something lacking. But, but uh, you read in Acts, if you've got your Bibles, Acts chapter 2, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and Acts. And, and Acts is um, written by Luke, the one who wrote uh, Luke. But he, but he continues this. And I'm just going to read, I'm going to read about 10 or 12 verses, I think. And this is Pentecost, of course. And then I just want to share a few uh, things with you that... that that was put in my heart this afternoon. And uh, I tell you, when, when you hear Tom preach, 
you, you really get stirred up inside and you got to go and sit down with Jesus a little while and, and feast on that. And I appreciate Tom. Thank you, brother. I really do. On the day of Pentecost, seven weeks after Jesus' resurrection, the believers were meeting together in one place. And suddenly, suddenly there was a sound from heaven like the roaring of a mighty windstorm in the skies above them, and it filled the house where they were meeting. Then what looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them, and everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in other languages as the Holy Spirit gave them this ability. Godly Jews from many nations were, were living in Jerusalem at the time. And when they heard this sound, they came running, running to see what it was all about. And they were bewildered to hear their own languages being spoken by the believers. They were beside themselves with wonder. I mean, you know, they're away from this place and they hear what's, what's happening at, quote, church, right? Something's happening. How can this be, they exclaimed. These people are from, from Galilee, and yet we hear them speaking the languages of the lands where, where we were born. Here we are Parthians, Medes, Elamites, people from Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, the province of Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, uh, Egypt, and the heirs of Libya, uh, Libya uh, beyond or toward Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts uh, to Judaism, Christians and Arabians, and we all hear these people speaking in our own languages about these wonderful things that God has done. And they stood there, they stood there amazed and perplexed. What can this mean? They ask each other. And then verse 13 says, but others in the crowd were saying, they're drunk. They're drunk, that's all. They're drunk. It's a terrible thing to have a passion for life and no power to live it. And you talk to people, you talk to people uh, every day, any day, and, and you meet people who have a desire and have a drive for, for something more, for something to be happening in their lives that, that is electric like that, and, and yet they don't have the power uh, to live it. I used to have a man in a church we served years ago. He, uh, he was in the business of helping people go out of business. That, you know, you've, you've seen these stores uh, going out of business sale and, and, and it plastered all over the windows and inside and maybe even down the road that, that, that were going out of business. This man made a living helping people let go of their dreams. This man made a living taking from people their hope. And, and when he visited our church, I went to see him, and uh, I drove up to his house. He had this incredibly beautiful home, and I knocked on the door, and when I went in, there was no furniture. And, and it was like walking almost into a hollow cave. And when I sat down with a man, um, it was that way with him that it was almost an echo coming from within because he seemed empty. And, and he began to share a life, a life of really of tragedy. Uh, Steve Brown, who was a, a Presbyterian uh, minister and theologian, I guess you'd call him, and quite a comedian, great writer, has a great radio voice. He made this statement. He said, for most Christians, the Christian faith 
is, is either a raging fire or a dull habit. And think about that. Where do you fit in there? Where do I fit in there? For most Christians, the Christian faith is either a raging fire or a dull habit. When you get into the scriptures and you read about the early followers of Jesus, it wasn't that way at all. There was something going on in their lives that was incredible. And I want to show and share with you five things that come out of the first few chapters of Acts. And uh, um, first of all, the early followers, now, now plug into this, the disciples of Jesus were no longer afraid to be identified with Jesus in public. Acts chapter 2 and verse 14 says, Then Peter stepped forward with the 11 other apostles and shouted to the crowd, Listen, listen carefully, all of you fellow Jews and residents of Jerusalem. Make no mistake about this. In the very place where he had denied Jesus, now he's standing forth. And he said, Make no mistake about this. In Romans 1 and verse 16, you know the scripture. The apostle Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the good news about Christ. It is the power of God at work, saving everyone who believes, Jews first and also Gentiles. 3,000 new Christians, that first few verses of chapter 2, right? That first day or so, 3,000, 3,000 new Christians. And they didn't just hear about it, they saw it. They saw something. They heard something happening among the people. Years ago when Beth and I uh, met and got married after three months, don't ever do that, young people, but we, we did that, and, and uh, um, it's, it's worked pretty good. But when we met, um, we, we met this minister that, that became a dear friend and became my mentor for 40 years. From 74 to 2014, I had his funeral in 2014, October. And uh, he had, I, I saw something in his life that was different. He had the Holy Ghost, you know. I mean, there was something happening. There's a great uh, a Methodist preacher and, and a, just a powerful, powerful man of God. His churches, you had to go early to get a seat. I mean, the first service we ever went to, we, we went with my parents and, and uh, we couldn't sit together. It was so crowded, and it was a Sunday night. It's incredible. It's incredible. G.K. Chesterton, great uh, minister of yesteryear, said, Jesus promised his disciples three things, that they would be completely fearless, absurdly happy, and in constant trouble. And, and, and I'm, you know, I can testify to that. I can't. But they're no longer afraid to go public with their testimony. And you've got to stop and ask yourself, are you there? Are you afraid to go public with your testimony? Secondly, secondly, a second thing that really comes out is that they were exuberant in their worship. They were exuberant uh, in their worship. One night, uh, I was at the funeral home with my dad, and, and uh, we got this call. It's a Sunday night, and uh, we got this call, and they said that... Uh, that a friend of ours had died in church. And uh, it really happened. They said a friend of ours had, uh, had died in church and uh, wanted us to come in and pick up the man and, and take him back to the funeral home. And uh, so we went in, we went to the church and we went in the back door, my dad and I had the cot 
And dad said this, and he didn't mean it, but in this way, but he said, which one is he? And I went, I thought, no, dad, that, that's not the one to tell there. Uh, but that really happened, you know. Uh, Ah, oh, help me, Jesus. Uh, the scripture says in verse 15 uh, of Acts 2, some of you are saying these people are drunk. It isn't true. It's much too early for that. People don't get drunk by 9 o'clock in the morning and, and because there was exuberance there. It's the only way they could explain it. In, in Ephesians 5, verses 18 and 19, Paul writes, don't be drunk with wine because that will ruin your life. Instead, let the Holy Spirit fill and control you. Then you will sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs among yourselves, making music to the Lord with all your heart. You know, uh, um, worship is like the atmosphere. You know, it, worship, as, uh, as you go into church when the worship's right, Anything can happen. I mean, I've had, a, I've had a good sermon in my heart before, and a worship be so bad, it just knocked the breath out of me. You ever done that, Tom? I mean, you go in, and you're, you're ready to preach. You're ready to preach. And, and somebody drags up to the, you know, not tab, but someone walks up to and, and, and kills whatever's there, and it sucks the life out of you. Uh, it's the atmosphere. Worship, when, when, you feel a, when you feel a room filled your heart with the praise of God, God can move. My mother was a church organist. My mother was a church organist 80 years. 80 years. And uh, I grew up in worship. I'd go in the house, mom was playing the organ. I'd go in the house, mom's playing the piano. We're singing, uh, especially at Christmas or something, but it was all year. People coming by the house just to be a part of what was going on. They wanted to be a part. Uh, of, of the worship at our house because it was, they knew things could happen and there new possibilities. But here they said, these people thought they were drunk. And, and uh, I had this said to me one time, this is certainly not original, but someone asked the question, how do you get drunk? You get drunk by drinking. How do you stay drunk? You keep on drinking. And there's a story that comes out of Mexico from uh, a friend of mine and a friend of Tom's, uh, Mark Rutland, you know Mark. Uh, Mark told me this story. He said that there was a, there was a guy down in Mexico, and, and he was a, a native there. And, and, and anyway, he was, uh, he was driving a truck one day, and he was hauling a, a, a truckload of, of honey. It was, this truck was full of, of honey in jars. And, and he's driving down the road, and uh, he was drunk. And Mark said they were behind this guy, and they were watching this guy. We back and forth with this load of honey, and, and, and he's weaving back and forth, and they're watching him, they're kind of keeping a distance, but they're following because they're going up that same road, and they were afraid to go around him. And finally, he went over an embankment, and when he hit the bottom of the embankment, his whole load of honey came crashing into the cab, and so Mark jumped out, and he, he ran around to the door, a piece of a door that was there, and he said, are you all right? Are you all right? And the guy was up to here in honey. He's about to drown in honey in the cab. And Mark said, are you all right? And the guy said this. He said, I'm drunk as a skunk and everything I touch is sweet. And, and uh, when Mark told me that, I thought, 
that's really what we're talking about here. You know, that, that uh, being so uh, inebriated, if you will, by the Spirit of God, just overtaken. I, I have a friend, Beth and I had a, had a friend that, um, that was a, uh, he had a real alcohol problem, we'll say. His name was Bruce, and he was a, a very successful businessman, and he met Jesus. And it turned him upside down, and it also turned our church upside down. He was a key player in reaching a community for the Lord. That place exploded when Bruce met Jesus. And it is incredible. But when football season started, he was uh, in Knoxville at the University of Tennessee at Neyland Stadium. And uh, while he was there, he was sitting there, and, and uh, it got to be the third quarter, and that cold, that cold winter rain started falling. And Tennessee had a, had a big lead, probably playing a high school or something, but, but they had a good-sized lead. And uh, don't quote me on that. Uh, but, but anyway, they had this big lead, and, and the guy that was with Bruce, Bruce, uh, the, the guy said, Bruce, let's, let's go home. The game's over. Let's go home. And, and like I said, it's late in the third quarter, and the rain's pouring down. They're both soaked to the bone. And, and, and the guy said, let's go home, Bruce. The game's over. We've won the game. Bruce said, no, no. He said, I want to see how it ends. He said, Why? And Bruce said, you know, I've never seen the fourth quarter of a ball game. All the ball games I've been here, I've been so drunk that I've never seen the fourth quarter, and I want to see how a football game ends. That's, that's how that guy was. But his life, his life there in that little uh, village where we lived uh, turned the place upside down because there was such an excitement there was such an excitement with what God was doing in his life. Now, many years after that, Beth and I, we were ministering in Radford, Radford uh, Virginia, just south of Roanoke. And um, while we were ministering there, we had, uh, you know, we had a, a, a nice church and, and there weren't many people there. Uh, beautiful place, but it was pretty empty. And uh, so we started the ministry. I hired a Baptist minister as a youth director. He told me, he said, you can't hire me. I'm a Baptist minister. And uh, I said, I don't care. I said, you, you love kids? Let's go after them. Uh, the, the Wesley Foundation, I spoke there one Wednesday night, and there were five of us there. There were three college students, and there were 10,000 college students on campus. There were three of them uh, at that meeting, and me and the leader, the five of us. That same night, we had 119 on campus. And uh, people were getting saved every week in that youth ministry. And we would take them on Wednesday night after the meetings. We would go to the local uh, motel, and they had an indoor swimming pool with a with beautiful area there. And every night it closed at 10. So we'd go down there on Wednesday nights and baptize youth. And we had, we had about 100, 150 kids, and uh, they were all new Christians. We didn't get anybody that really knew Christ, it seemed, that uh, we picked up new Christians, and they didn't know how to act, really, at least uh, the way that we see people act. And, and they needed the church to go to, and I said, I'm your church. So they started coming to our church, and we'd always have between 45 and 60, and, and kids know you're supposed to sit in the back, you know. There they are. 
You know, young people, right? Not kids, young people. You, you know that. Uh, so these, these young people didn't know that. So when they came to church, they sat in the front. And, and uh, when they sat in the front, they filled up the front section of that church uh, over to my right. And here was the pulpit, and the pulpit was way up, up in the air. And you, you'd kind of look down at them, you know. And there they were. And, they, and as, as more and more of them got saved, that area began to fill up. And there was an old lady sat about the third row back. And as these kids began to fill up that area, she, uh, she wasn't about to move. Everybody else moved, not her. She'd sit there like this, just dare them. You know, she, she was like a bouncer, you know. And she'd sit there and, and she's three or four rows back, and one Sunday morning, there was probably 60 plus, and they engulfed her. And they were all around her, and there she sat. And the choir, Beth was leading the choir, and the choir was on, and they were really swinging out that morning, and, and it, the, the worship was incredible. And these kids didn't know how to say amen. They didn't know, what, amen? What in the world is that? I mean, they were as bad at that as Methodists are. You know, we don't say amen, we hum, right? You've heard me talk about that. We go, you know, if you agree, what do you do? Mmm. Mmm. I don't know what people think when they come in. That's what you do, really. Listen around you sometimes. And, uh, and somebody hums, just say, Joe said that. Remember that. Joe told. But anyway, these kids didn't know how to do that. So, so... So as the service began to move and, and, and uh, um, if they liked something, they turned to each other and do high fives. They do high fives. And, and then that, that time of music when the, the choir was doing that special and the place was rocking, they did the wave across the front of the church. And I'd never seen that. I thought that was the coolest thing in the world. After it was over, this lady, this lady, she came up to me and she said, Preacher, and I said, Yes, ma'am. She said, uh, you're going to do something about these kids. And I said, what do you suggest? And I said, what are you talking about? She said, uh, they're doing that high stuff. I said, yeah, high five. She said, yeah. And they did that thing across the front. I said, the wave. She said, yes. What are you going to do about that? I said, do you know what they used to do? She said, what they used to do? I said, they used to nurse their hangovers on Sunday morning. Which do you suggest uh, they do? And there was this long pause. It seemed like a week and a half, but it wasn't. But there was a long pause, and she looked at me, and she said, they need to be here, don't they? I said, yeah. I said, don't worry about it. So the, a few weeks later, Daniel, who's one of the leaders of this group of young people, he came to me, and he said, do you think the preacher think we're... Do they think we're, that, that the group is conceited or self-righteous? And I said, well, some of them do. And they said, what do you suggest we do? I said, spread out. Don't sit up front. Don't just sit in that one section. Spread out. The next Sunday, they were all over the church. People could not hide. And Daniel, there were two old ladies sitting in the back. And Daniel walked in. I watched him. He walked in, and these ladies were sitting there in their spot that, that the, I'm sure the pews had the, the, the groove of the, 
you know. They'd been there so long. They'd been there so long that they were there. If anybody had sat in their seat, they would have been tilted, you know. And, and there they sat. There they sat. And Daniel, Daniel walks in and he scoots across the, the pew. And, and he looked at him and he got right between them. And he said, do you mind if I sit here? And what could they say? Because by that time he's turned around and he's, he's kind of scooting down in the seat. So I saw all of this, and I saw these people all over the place, these young people, and I said, when I got up and made announcements, I said, why don't, uh, why don't, we, why don't we turn to each other and greet one another today? And Daniel turned, I knew what he'd do, he turned and he grabbed one of those old ladies. I bet they hadn't been grabbed in years. And he grabbed, he grabbed that old lady, and you could almost hear her bones crunch. And, and, and he gave her a big hug, and he turned to the other, and the other one's going, and, and there was nowhere to run, so he reached over and grabbed her, you know, and, and gave her a big hug. And they just kind of, and, and I said, well, let's sing. And then we started singing, and they just kind of sitting there thinking, I can't believe that happened to me. But every week after that, those ladies and others, they looked for those kids. They looked for those kids. Those kids were excited about Jesus because he had changed their lives. We had a, a parents' weekend. You know how they do that in these colleges. And, and uh, all these parents, they were coming in from everywhere. And, and so I was there with this Baptist guy, and uh, we were greeting the parents uh, in our little church group, kind of. And, and I said, uh, I, he said, he said this. He said, y'all have any questions that you'd like to ask us? And this one guy, and this was Julio's daddy, and Julio's an Italian, and his daddy looked like, Looked like the Godfather, you know? He said, uh, I've got a question. I said, well, what is that? And he said, I used to come down here at least once a month and bail Julio out of jail. I came down one time and, and once or twice and he was in the hospital because of fights in the bars, but he was, he's always in and out of jail because he just likes to have a good time. And I said, well, that's nice. And then he said, but I, I don't have to do that anymore. What happened to Julio? And Julio just sitting there smiling at Daniel. He, he stood up and he turned to this guy's parents and he said, I'll tell you what's with, what's with Julio. He said, a few months ago, you wouldn't have wanted your daughter to go out with me. But Jesus, Jesus got a hold of me and Julio. And they were two of the ringleaders in that whole group. And, and that, that's what, that's a difference. That's a thing that shouts the presence of God. That's the kind of excitement that was going on in the book of Acts. And that's the same God that we worship. That's the same God that changed these people will, will change us. He'll change each of us. And you know, uh, worship is, again, the atmosphere where it opens, it, it, just, it just opens a door for God to move. We used to have a, we used to have a uh, parakeet at my, uh, my house where I grew up. His name was Charlie. Some of you, maybe, maybe you've heard me talk about Charlie the parakeet. And Charlie was a little blue parakeet. And uh, you know, uh, Charlie, Charlie had a nice long life, whatever, I can't remember what it was, but when Charlie died, it really broke our hearts. And my brother Sam, in, in my house, uh, my mama's house, mom and dad's house, 
uh, there was seven kids, and uh, in, in our family, there's six, there's six morticians, undertakers. And, and it's not safe to take a nap at mama's house, you know? <laughs> and and uh, that's, uh, you know, you lay on the couch and they walk by and they say, my, it looks natural, doesn't it? And they sign the book at the end of the, end of the couch. But, but anyway, Charlie died. Charlie died. And uh, so we, uh, my brother Sam, he's getting ready to go to, uh, this a year or two later, he went to Mortuary Science uh, uh, College in Cincinnati. And uh, so he said, why don't we embalm Charlie and that way we can keep him around. So he, this is about 60 years ago. He embalmed Charlie and uh, we put him in a little cedar box. And, and uh, Charlie's still around. You know that really? Charlie, Charlie is still with us. But the odd thing about Charlie is you open the box, he's still a bird. But he, I, he hasn't sung a note in years. Over half a century, we have not heard from Charlie because Charlie's dead. Charlie's dead. And sometimes you go in churches the same way, man. We worship a God that is alive, and we're like old Charlie. I had a funeral one time, and, and uh, true story, I, uh, I didn't know this guy that well, and they'd asked me to do the funeral. And, and, and uh, so when I walked in the funeral home to do the, the funeral, um, there was a, uh, what they call a spray, a casket spray of flowers on the casket. You with me? You know what I'm talking about? And so I walked up to the casket and there was a button in the flowers. There was a button in the flowers. I, I've been around caskets all my life. I've never seen a button in the flowers. So I walk up and I see the button and I'm thinking, God, I got to push that button. I, just, I, I can't walk away without finding out. So I can call my brothers and say, I've got the latest, you know. And, 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 and so when I hit the button, I, I, I just, you know, you kind of look around. And it was about 30 minutes before the funeral, and so people weren't. weren't so I kind of looked around, and I, and I hit the button. And when I hit the button, it went, ain't nothing but a hound dog. And I, and I stepped back. And this, this lady walked up to me and she said, it's a true story. This lady said, there's other songs in the flowers over there. I was in the middle of a concert, you know that? But, but the person was not, he was not alive. Look for buttons, brother. The true story, true story. You know, so, so often we, we sing, make a joyful noise unto the Lord while our faces, we, uh, they, they kind of um, reflect the sadness of, of losing your uh, richest aunt and she left all her money to a pregnant hamster or something, you know? That's the way I felt when my, I had an uncle dying and, and he left a fortune to a school and, and I got a raincoat with a hole right here, you know, that type of thing. But, but we worship that way and, and uh, we shouldn't, goodness. We serve a mighty God. Make a joyful noise. Thirdly, we've got to move quickly. Thirdly, the early disciples, they lived their lives as though they believed that what Jesus did when he walked the earth, he would now do through them. He would now do it through them. It, it's, it's awesome to talk about God. 
I mean, that is so awesome. But to experience his presence, to know that he's within you, that the power, as it says in Romans 8, 11, the power that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in us. That, that's another ballgame, man. We can talk about him. We can sing about him. But to sing to him and to worship him, it's a whole nother thing. That uh, um, the early disciples believed that what what Jesus did when he walked the face of the earth, he'd now do through them. In, in Acts chapter 3, uh, there was a beggar at, at the gate of the temple. You remember this in, in verse uh, 6. And he, he's begging, and, and Peter said, we don't have any money, but what I have I'll give you. The King James, uh, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee. And then he said, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Rise up and walk. John 14, 12 said, Jesus says, the truth is anyone who believes in me will do the same works that I've done and even greater works because I'm going to be with the Father. Uh, Jeremiah 29 says, if you look for me in earnest, you'll find me. If you seek me, he's here, he's here. And we've got to know that and we need to live that way. A fourth thing is that the disciples no longer were trying to please man or humankind, they were trying to please God. That was what was so important to them. The scripture says in chapter 4, verses 18 through 20, so they called the apostles back. This is after Peter and John, the man is healed, a crippled man at the, at the gate of the temple, and they're, they're on trial. They're in trouble for acting like Jesus, really. And uh, they warned them. They said, you're going to shut up. You know, you're going to quit talking about Jesus. And they called the apostles back in. They said, they said, never again speak or teach about Jesus. But Peter and John replied, do you think God wants us to obey you rather than him? We cannot stop telling uh, about the wonderful things we have seen and we have heard. Who speaks the loudest in your life? When I was a kid, I could be playing ball somewhere or being with a group of friends anywhere in our neighborhood, and my mother could call my name. She wouldn't have to yell very loud, but I would recognize her voice. When she would just say, hey, and I know it was my mother, I recognized the voice. Whose voice speaks the loudest to you? And then finally this. Their primary concern, the early disciples' primary concern to have, was to have boldness to proclaim the word. You know, it, it's time to do that, to make to make our lives be a testimony to the resurrected Jesus. You know, um, Mercedes-Benz several years ago had a commercial. They had a commercial where uh, uh, they, they were talking about, uh, I, think, I think it was a framework of a car, and uh, they didn't have a patent on it. And, and another car uh, manufacturer said, do you not have a patent on that, that, that thing that you have founded that, that's working so well? And I, it, it seems like it's in the frame. And they said, no, no, we don't have a patent. They said this, listen to this. This is a car manufacturer. They said, some things are too important not to share. Some things are too important not to share. And I think that our walk with Jesus is too important not to share. Don't you? Too important not to share. Vince Lombardi said, that great old football coach of yesteryear, the Green Bay Packers, he said that every ball game 
the outcome is settled by eight or ten decisions that are made during the game. That's life, isn't it? If you really stop and ask yourself, if you look at your life, if you stand back and you look at your life and you see, you see eight or ten decisions that you made that has brought you to where you are today, that there's eight or ten decisions that you make that, that has brought you to this place in the game, are you making the right decisions? Let me close with a story. The man's name was Jack. True story. Jack was an ex-Marine. Jack, uh, Jack was an ex-professional uh, fighter. Jack was an, an angry, scary man. He was a successful businessman. His family, they were afraid of him. He was an angry, angry person. And they'd seen him explode. They knew, they knew how the possibilities and the potential. He was like a lethal weapon, and they were afraid of him. At work, there was one guy. One guy kept going to Jack and said, Jack, why don't you come on? We're having a Christian retreat. We've got a men's retreat next, next week. Why don't you go on this retreat? And he'd say, I don't want to go with that. I don't want anything to do with that. And, and he, sometimes he'd dress that up with different language. But, but anyway, he, he would, and that guy, anytime through the whole year, he said, why don't, why, don't, why don't you come to this or why don't you come to that? And Jack said, no. And finally, finally Jack said, uh, well, I'll think about it. But the way Jack was living his life, it was not only affecting him, his family was in a mess, and his son had all kinds of problems, all kinds of problems. And he's having a lot of problems at school, and he had no friends, no friends at school. Nobody hung out with Jack's son. Well, finally, one day, this guy got through to Jack, and, and uh, Jack said, uh, well, I'll go on a retreat. And he went on, it's like an Emmaus walk type thing, and by the, second, by the second day, Jack knew that he was going to have to surrender his life to Christ. So he goes and he, he talks to a friend who takes him to one of the leaders, and they lead him to Christ. And Jack said, uh, what should I do when I go back to work? It will frighten people. They won't believe what's happened to me. And the leader said, well, go easy, go easy. So anyway, he... He goes home, and the, and the family's there, of course, his wife and his son. And um, he's in the office one night, and he'd been home two, three or four days, and there's a little knock at the door, kind of a, kind of a weak, just a weak knock. And, and Jack says, come in. And it's his son. And his son comes in just sheepishly. He comes in, and he stands before his dad's desk. And uh, he said, Dad, what happened to you? And his dad said, well, sit down, son. And he sat down and shared his testimony of meeting Jesus. And then he led his boy to Jesus. Jack, when he would tell this later, he said, he said, that was the night that my son became happy. Isn't that something? A day or two later, Jack had to go away on a business trip, and he flew away for two or three days. And he, when he came back, his wife, who usually picked him up alone, the son was with her. And that never happened. And, and when, when Jack walked in, 
And, and the son ran and just hugged his dad, which never happened. And he said, Dad, Dad, guess what? He said, Jesus has changed every kid in my class. Isn't that something? What he was saying was, I'm seeing people differently. The presence of the living God in my life is making a difference. But uh, the people who had been people he couldn't stand and made his days miserable became his best friends because he saw them, as we did the other night, he saw them through the eyes of Jesus. He had a different perspective. What about your witness? Are you alive? Are you like Charlie? Uh, are you like Charlie in a cedar box that you don't have a song anymore? You don't have someone to sing about, someone to sing to? Wow, you can. And there's not a better time than tonight. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you, Lord, for the witness of the early disciples. The fact that they just, they decided that no longer is my witness going to be a, a quiet thing. I'm going public. I'm going to share. I'm going to speak it out. No longer did they hide in some corner of the church and think kind of neat things about you. But they decided, I'm going to sing my heart out. I'm going to worship the living God. No longer, no longer were they, were they hiding out. But they were ministering. They were doing the things, Father, that your son Jesus did when he walked the earth. They believed and they stepped out in faith. Father, I pray that we can become that kind of a people, that that potential is, is in each of us. We don't have to go back to the same old, same old. We come here to this incredible place. We have incredible uh, friends here. What a wonderful place this is. But we'll be going back in a day or two, and the world needs to meet our Jesus, Father. I pray for people of every age tonight, that tonight could be a fresh commitment to follow Jesus, to come out of the secret place and to be that witness, to be Jack, to realize that no matter hard, how hard our resistance is, we've got a God that can change us, change us into the dynamic person that he's created us to be. So Father, speak your words. Speak, challenge each of us tonight to step up, Go to the next level and I walk with you to see what you can do in the situation in which we live. And Lord, that we'll not be living plotlessly, but we'll be people with a new purpose and true direction. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to sing, and if you need to come and pray, we certainly invite you. And if you'd like somebody to pray with you, lift your hand. But don't leave tonight without Jesus. Let's stand and sing. Dad? Without him, without him, I could do nothing. Without him, I'd surely fail. Without him, I would be drifting. Like a ship without a sail 
Jesus, so Jesus, do you know him today? Jesus, oh Jesus, do you know him today? Please don't turn him away. Please don't turn him away. Oh Jesus, my Jesus, without him. Without Him, how lost I would be. Without Him, I'd be dying. Without Him, I would be dying. Without Him, I'd be enslaved. Without Him, I'd be enslaved. Without Him, life would be worthless. Without Him, life would be worthless. But with Jesus, thank God I'm saved. But with Jesus, thank God I am saved. Oh, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Oh, Jesus, do you know him today? Do you know him? Please don't turn him away. Please don't turn him away. Oh, Jesus, Jesus. Oh, Jesus. Without him, I lost. Without him, how lost I would be. Oh, let's sing that chorus one more to Jesus, Jesus. Jesus, oh Jesus, do you know him? Please don't turn him away. Please don't turn him away. Oh, oh Jesus, oh Jesus, without him. Without Him, how lost I would be. Just as I am without one plea, but that Thy blood was shed for me and that thou bidst me come to thee O Lamb of God I come I come O Jesus do you know him today? Oh, Jesus. Oh, Jesus. Do you know him today? Please don't turn him away. Oh, Jesus. Oh, Jesus. Without Him, how lost I would be. If 
If you need to, if you'd like to come, we'll, we'll dismiss you. But if you'd like to come and be with us and, and, and uh, pray at the altar, we'd certainly, we'd certainly invite you. Maybe God is really tapping you on the shoulder that this is your night. Don't miss out. Don't miss out on what God has for you. His plan's a lot bigger than yours. You know that? So let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the miracle we'll experience here tonight. Thank you for your presence. Thank you for your, your willingness to receive us. Goodness. And, and Father, I thank you that, uh, that you see our potential as your children. You see it so much clearer than we do. That this is not Seinfeld where we're just going to go from one event to another. This is a life with Jesus where you've got a plan for us and a purpose for our lives. So, Lord, I pray that the challenge of this hour will just continue with us. And we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.